0: So please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording and we thank you for listening.
1: How's everybody doing tonight? All right. Everybody sufficiently hydrated? As we say in Yiddish at Freilten Hanukkah. Or I should say, and Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah to you all. Happy holidays. Uh, Merry uh, upcoming Christmas and New Year's. Hope everybody is uh, enjoying the season. Uh, we have, as you of course know, two amazing readers tonight, and I and I say that every every month. But uh, not every month do I have uh, the pleasure of introducing. Uh, a friend, as well as a, a talented author. Um, but before we, before we get to that, I just would like to mention two things. First, the KGB bar is always free, and all they ask is that you drink. Hard or soft drinks. <laughs> Buy something at the bar, support the bar. You support the KGB bar, you support the Fantastic Fiction series. The other announcement is... Well, I have three announcements. The second announcement is that uh, Word Bookstore is here. Reagan from Word Bookstore, Word Brooklyn, is in the back, by the door, to the right of the door, selling uh, Rajan's novel, Falling Sky, and Stephen Gould's novels, uh, Jumper, *Exo*, and uh, what's the third book? Remind me again. For impulse, they reflex,
2: too.
1: Yes. Yeah. Reflex, thank you. So, uh, at the break, go buy books, get them signed, bring, uh, bring them up to the author, get them signed. Well, you could have Reagan sign them, but... You know, he probably might want the author to sign him. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, so we could do that at the break. Last announcement, and then we'll get on to the readers. Uh, upcoming readers January 21st, we got an amazing lineup in 2015. January 21st, Andy Duncan and Gregory Frost. Woo-hoo! February 18th, Mike Allen and Ben Lurie. March 18th, come on, guys, you got to cheer for Right. Both really talented, by the way. March 18th, Lisa Minetti and Caitlin Kiernan. <laughs> you heard that? <laughs> the state or the country? Georgia is another country. I've lived there. April 15th, Ken Liu and James Morrow. May 20th, Wesley Chu and Nicole Corner Stace. June seventeenth. <laughs> what? <Sorry. laughs> I didn't hear I... Is being
2: <laughs>
1: June seventeenth. Michaela Rossner and Simon Strances. Hey. Hey. July fifteenth. David Edison, Woo-hoo. and our favorite guest, TTBa. Right? <laughs> All right. On to our our first reader. Um, uh, I've known, I've known Rajan for a while now, and uh, it's just uh, it's amazing to see him and his career just take off as it has. As you may have heard, Felicia Day, you know the actress, Felicia Day? Who knows her? Heard of her? At least one person. She really liked his book, and she, she uh, mentioned it on the internet, you know, that place out there. She loved it. Um, Rajan's first novel, Falling Sky, was released in October. His short fiction has been published in Lightspeed. Beneath Cease the Skies, and several anthologies. His articles and reviews have appeared at Tor.com, Lit Reactor, and his podcast narrations can be heard at PodCastle, Escape Pod, Pseudopod, Beneath Cease the Skies, and Lightspeed. He's an amazing podcaster, he's an amazing writer. And he announces our... That's right, he introduces the KGB Fantastic Fiction podcast on our website, kgbfantasticfiction.org. Here's Rajan Khanna. <laughs>
0: Matt. I just thank you all for coming, first of all. I also want to thank Ellen and Matt because I've been coming to this reading series for at least 10 years now, and there have been many times that I've been sitting in the audience and thinking, like, one day I want to be up there, and now I am, and so thank you guys for letting me come up here, Uh, and thank you guys for being here. So this is my book, Falling Sky. It came out in October, I'm not going to read from the beginning because I've done that a few times. And if you go to tour.com, um, they have the full first chapter online to read for free. So I'm just going to jump around to a few different places uh, in the book. So hopefully that'll be okay. But before I do that, I just want to set up the, the premise of the book. So it's set in the near future, it's post apocalyptic. Basically, what happens in the near future. Jet fuel and fuel itself becomes so expensive that airships come back into uh, popularity. So you know, for passengers and for freight, and so there's a bunch of them around, and then a global pandemic hits, which is really bad. And that is a uh, virulent disease virus that is transmitted by fluids, and the the disease can survive um, for long periods of time in air. So basically, if you get any kind of blood or you know, saliva or any kind of fluids in you, um, you'll get it. And so the disease regresses people into a kind of animalistic state, and uh, the people who are infected lose their reason and they become extremely violent and they become extremely um, hungry all the time, and they're called ferals. So you have this society where you have a bunch of people who have survived by living in airships off the ground, and you have a bunch of hungry, bloodthirsty, animalistic, infected humans on the ground and uh, also resources on the ground, so people have to go back down. So the the main protagonist of the book, his name is Ben Gold, and he has his own airship. And prior to the start of the novel, he's hooked up with a woman named Miranda, who's a scientist, and she leads a group of scientists who their goal is to try and cure um, what they call the bug uh, in common parlance, the virus. Uh, And his job is to protect her and carry her around. And in the first chapter, he's escorted her to a place uh, where she's tranquilized a feral and taken a blood sample. And so I'm going to read from chapter two first, uh, which picks up from there. Miranda's knock on the gondola hatch wakes me from the light slumber I fell into. I wipe my mouth and go over to open it. I always know when it's her. She always uses the same pattern of knocking. When you're a forager out on your own, you learn to pay attention to sounds. She climbs up into the gondola and falls back into one of the chairs. She sniffs, drinking? Just a little nightcap. She nods as if she understands. Have any left? I raise my eyebrows and reach for the bottle, pass it to her. She takes a big swig from it, but swallows it down easily. A slight flush of her light brown skin, the only reaction. We need to go out again, she says. What? We need to go back to the last location. I reach for the canteen of filtered water and take a gulp. Why? She pushes back the wavy brown hair from her face. Because I need to find that ferrule, the one I drew the blood from. She looks at my face. There's something in it. Yes, it's called the bug. Something else. My eyes narrow. What kind of something else? She takes another slug from the bottle. I'm not really sure. A mutation, maybe? But the virus seems to react differently in him, and I need more plasma to look at. I need to maybe do a physical examination. It's by no means sure, but this specimen could exponentially increase our knowledge of the virus and help us find a cure. I rub my hands over my face, willing her not to say it. Ben, don't say it. We need to capture it, alive. I shake my head. I can't stop myself. Craziness. I keep telling myself she's really not all that fucked in the head, and then she opens her mouth and... Are you fucking crazy? Ben, no. No. I start pacing. No, I thought you were crazy when you wanted to transport blood. And you are. And yet I found a way to accept that, to deal with it. But now you want to capture a feral, knock it out, and and what, bring it on my ship? No, no way, not ever. Ben, you know this is important. Why? Because you say it is? Because you believe that you'll find a cure? I once knew a woman who believed the bug was God's judgment and that one day he would rescue those who were pure from this hellhole of a life. Who's to say that your belief is any better than hers? Come on, Ben. No. Fucking no. You... Jesus, you hired me to protect you. To keep you and the others safe during all of this. Well, I can tell you that dealing with a live feral is not fucking safe. Especially if you're thinking of... God damn it! Thinking of poking it with needles and getting all up close to it. You know how it is. One drop. And that's not even considering what happens if the sedative wears off prematurely. Or if he manages to escape and run wild in the core... God damn it, Miranda. Miranda stares at me, silent, then says, Are you done? I just might be. It takes a moment for what I'm saying, what I'm really saying, to sink in. She shakes her head. You confound me. Excuse me? You'll risk your life for trinkets, for scissors and hubcaps, but something real, my face flushes with heat. I risk my life so that I can prolong it. I risk it for food, or I risk it for things I can barter for food. You find me a magical machine that spits out good food on a regular basis, and I'll hold up there until my old age. Until then, I aim to keep on living. What well, you're talking about reeks of going in the opposite direction. What I'm talking about is the long view, Ben. What happens when the food runs out? When your sources of barter dry up? If we find a cure, that's a big fucking if, Miranda. And in the meantime, people are going to die. People are going to be infected. And then more, and then more. And I'm not sticking around to have it happen to me. She leans forward. There are risks, yes, but what we're trying for, it's worth it. Don't you want to help save the world? Isn't that worth putting your neck out for? Not if I lose my head, I say. She shakes her head again. You're a selfish coward. The words sting more than I thought they would. Fuck you, Miranda, get off my ship. Ben, now! Her scowl breaks for a moment, and I can see that she's hurt. And for a fraction of a moment, just a tiny little space, I want to reach out to her and tell her I'm sorry. But I don't, and she hardens up again. A little part of me is proud at that. She doesn't say anything as she lowers herself to the ladder, and for that, I'm grateful. I finish the rest of the bottle after she goes. So after that fight, Ben decides to leave and goes off on his own for a while, and then finds out that there are ships heading back to where the scientists are based to attack. And so he heads back to try and help them only to find out that everyone's running around scared and Miranda and her close friends are not to be found. I hear the whine of ships approaching. No, it's too soon. Two come in at first with lines hanging underneath them. My blood goes cold. Each of the ships has a long cable suspended from it, and at the end of those cables are large metal hooks. Pierced and wriggling on the ends of those hooks, like bait, are ferals one each just like a gas town. The core freezes as if etched into my vision. People are still running around carrying boxes and equipment. Some have made it to the ships and are pulling up cargo, but too few. One of the ferals drops and half runs, half stumbles through the open courtyard, spraying blood all around it. The chaos of before returns, intensified. Two of the three boffin airships start to move away, the boffins are the scientists, uh, running from the ferals and the raiders and for open air, panicking. The cherub That's Ben's ship, by the way, sorry, is too far away. I unsling the rifle from around my back and enter that cold, dark place that helps keep me alive. There are only two ferals, but of course I don't want to get close to them, but I know this place better than they do. I climb one of the frames the boffins use to hold some of their construction projects. It's not the most stable perch, but it will hold me. I sight down the rifle at the dying feral. I breathe in, hold it, and pull the trigger. The bullet misses the Farrell's face, but his neck and shoulder explode in a shower of blood that I hope doesn't hit anyone. But it puts him down. He falls like a sack of rocks, and now we're down to one. I scan to find the other one, but don't see it. A voice in my head screams at me, Run for your ship, you idiot, you're not even wearing your scarf. I think the Farrells might be able to climb this frame. I look around at the remaining Boffin ship, wondering if I could get to that. Take it around to the cherub, when one of the raiders, with a gondola-mounted machine gun, rakes the ship and the whole thing erupts in a blossom of fire. A moment later, I'm tossed to the ground, hard, and thought disappears under a wave of silence and shock. My hand closes on nothing, the rifle falling from it. My eyes refuse to focus. I see movement, but I'm not sure what it is. Get up, the voice in my head says. I push myself to my knees. I can't see the rifle, but I feel the weight of the automatic in my waistband, and I reach for it. A flurry of legs out of the corner of my eye. I turn to face it, almost fire, but it's one of the boffins. She's bleeding, her face twisted in fear, and I don't know if she's been infected, and there's nothing I can do for her. The raider ships start to descend. They'll be in the corps soon, and I can't stop them. I run for the cherub, knowing that it's the only thing that can keep me safe. It's the only thing I can depend on. My ears are filled with an insistent ringing and sounds are still beyond me. I throw open the door to the inner corridor, the automatic out, my finger pressed up against the trigger as close as I can without actually pulling it. No movement. The corridor is clean. I'm halfway to the exit when I see the feral. It's lying on the floor, blood pooling around it. But it's not dead. It's squirming, weak from the loss of blood, its eyes wild. I don't need to kill it. Nature will do that for me. But I can't risk it lashing out at me or shaking a drop of blood at me, so I stop and I fire three bullets into its head, knowing that the gunshots will likely alert any raiders nearby. I move as fast as I can while skirting the feral blood, pressing myself against the wall, feeling it scrape against my cheek. Then I'm at the door, then out of it, and I look up to see the cherub flying away. So Ben loses his airship, which basically is his home, and so... He goes on a few different adventures and ends up at a settlement, an island settlement, um, without his airship, wanting to get back into the sky and basically losing all of his friends along the way. And as he's having a few drinks in a bar that luckily happens to have beer on the island, um, he hears somebody speaking Hebrew. And this part I'm reading just because it's Hanukkah and Ben is... (laughs) Even though I'm not Jewish, Ben is Jewish, so I thought it would be a nice little, um, little observation. Uh, okay. Dad drilled me in Hebrew growing up. Mom probably, too, though I don't remember that. I learned it just as I learned English, and for a while I never questioned it. It was something my father was teaching me. That was enough. It wasn't until I got a little older that I started asking him what it meant, where it was from, why I needed to know it. It's not like we, were, we ever met anyone who spoke it. He responded by giving me a copy of the Torah, which wasn't English, but I was captivated. I'd never read anything like it. He explained his significance, started teaching me about Judaism, what it used to mean to people back in the clean. The story of Noah was probably my favorite, followed by Moses. I was captivated by the image of God using water to cleanse the earth. I became convinced it would happen again. That God would wash away all the chaos and blood and tears of the sick, and we would sail through the air above it, safe on our own little ark, until the world was clean again. Needless to say, that never happened. When I was older, I wondered if maybe the bug was the flood. Not a literal washing away, but a figurative one, drowning humanity and leaving only mindless ferals behind. I didn't mention that theory to my father, though. I remember once hitting a small town when I was a teenager. Foraging in small towns was often made more difficult by the overgrown vegetation that quickly took them over. It made them less desirable targets, not to mention they were almost always infested with ferals. But both those things meant they usually still had valuables, and when you were desperate, they sometimes seemed like a good idea. So we went down and used our machetes to hack through the plants to get into a stretch of stores to see what we could find. I remember there being some reasonably good salvage, but not what it was. We also stumbled into a feral nest. They came for us, at us, all limbs and teeth. The strobing of our muzzle flashes lit up the dark interior. I could barely see a shape before it was on me, pulling the trigger of my pistol again and again, reacting mostly on instinct. My pistol went dry, then my backup, and I began using the machete, the only other weapon I had, conscious of the blood flying everywhere, hoping none of it was hitting me or dad then it was done we stood there the only moving objects heaving sweating i turned to look at dad and saw his expression a mix of relief and fear but fear unlike any i'd seen before his eyes were wide haunted as if he were still seeing the attacking ferals then i looked where his gaze was and saw them tiny broken bodies young ferals bleeding torn up by bullets or machetes or both Some were maybe my age, but many were younger. I remember understanding then the ferocity of the attack. They were defending their offspring. I knew they were ferals. I knew they wanted to kill us, but I felt numb. Then Dad grabbed me and turned me to face him, checking me for blood spatter, for wounds. The strange detachment still had hold of me as his gloved fingers examined me, as his flashlight shone in my face. Then, when he was satisfied that I was okay, he pulled me to him and held me for a time. My father wasn't a cold man, but that kind of thing wasn't common. I let him hold me until the numbness started to fade, then we grabbed our findings and prepared to leave. As we were getting ready to climb the ladder to the cherub, Dad stopped suddenly, his gaze on the building next to us. Dad, I asked, we should go. Wait, he said, and I worried. Had he been infected? It wasn't like him to be so distracted, but he walked toward the building and hacked his way through to the door. As I followed him, I realized that I could read the words above the entrance and that they were in Hebrew. It was a synagogue. Long wooden benches filled it with a raised podium on one side. People used to pray here, didn't they? I asked. Dad nodded. Ben, go back to the ship, he said. Dad? I'll just be a moment. Take everything up to the cherub. Okay, I said. Usually I did what he told me to without question, only this time I didn't. This time I hid in the entrance to see what he would do. He moved down the aisle until he was right in front of the raised podium. Then he fell to his knees. I have no way of knowing for certain, but I'm sure my father was praying. The man who didn't believe in God was praying, and it unnerved me. I hurried out to the ladder and our stash and headed back to the cherub. I never asked Dad about that. Never felt comfortable bringing it up. But right here, on tomoan the island, right now hearing the Hebrew drifting on the night air, I wish I had. I follow the sound not too far from the frothy brew to a simple wooden building with a star of David hanging above the door. Inside there are rows of wooden benches and a scattering of people sitting on them. Up at the front of the room stands a man in a wa- uh, wearing a wide-brimmed flat hat and with hair curling around his ears, almost merging into his large beard. The words he's speaking are artifacts from another time. I can hear them with my father's voice, his inflections, this kind of solemn weight they always carried, like magic words from a story. We were never really good at figuring out what day it was, either by date or by day, but every so often we would observe the Sabbath, repeat the ritual words as our ancestors had done. And then there was the Star of David. My father had told me that his mother had given it to him when he was just a boy, an heirloom passed down through her family. It was made of gold, a worthless metal in the sick, but worth something once upon a time. I always thought it was special because our surname was gold. Family names might also be worthless in the sick, but Dad made sure ours wasn't. He wore it all the time, even when he bathed, he had it next to his skin. I was always worried that he might lose it, but somehow he always kept it safe for all those years. Ultimately, I was the one who took it from him. I can still see those moments so clearly, see it gleaming around his neck in that same moment that I saw the light of reason go out in his eyes. I didn't know that Dad had got the bug. I don't know if he knew, but I realized in that moment what was happening. I suppose I panicked. I don't even know what I was thinking, but I reached for the star hanging around his neck and snapped the chain, pulling it to me. Then, then I ran. I ran as far away as I could. It's a moment I relive again and again in my mind, a moment I'm still unsure of. For a long time, I told myself there was nothing else to do. I couldn't shoot my father. But there are times that I think I allowed him to live on like that, like a thing. Allowed him to become what we'd always hated. Out there, with the ability to infect others, to hurt others. Killing him might well have been a kindness to others as well as himself, but that's not the way things happened. But right now, with those words in the air, so much more musical than they ever were before, I can't help but feel him beside me, as if he were right there on the bench. Something loosens inside of me, some tension I didn't realize was there, and tears spill from my eyes. I sit like that for a little while, and when I open my eyes again, I realize the others have gone, and the rabbi has stopped speaking. He's looking at me, curiously. I'm sorry, rabbi, I say I'll get out of your hair. "'No need for that,' the rabbi says, shaking his head. "'I haven't seen you here before.' "'That's because I'm brand new in town,' I say. "'That's not an insignificant achievement,' he says. "'I smile a bit. I'm well aware of that.' "'I'm going to take from your reaction that you're a Jew,' he says. "'I nod, the last in a long line. "'My father, he taught me some of the prayers. "'I hadn't heard them in a long time. "'Well, I'm glad you came to sit with us then,' he says. "'Me too.' We have regular services every Shabbat, he says. We would love to have you join us. I'm not sure I'm the praying kind, I say. Yet you're here. True, I say. I just wanted, needed something from my past right now. A half smile curls his lip. Why does it have to be in the past? I just mean it reminds me of my father. I look at my hands clenched in my lap. I've lost him and practically everything he gave me. Surely not everything. Almost, I say. His airship, even his Star of David. The rabbi frowns. How do you lose an airship? It it was taken from me, I say, feeling fire spark in me. Oh, I see. He places a comforting hand on my shoulder. I'm, I'm sorry. And what of the Star of David? I frown and look away. I lost that in some trouble a while back, and I don't tell him the rest. Don't tell him I kept the revolver and lost the star. He holds up a hand. Please, he says. Wait here. I have something I think can help. He shuffles off into a back room and comes back a few minutes later. He holds out his hand, and sitting in it is a coil of gold, upon which sits a star of David. Please, he says again. I look at him surprised. You want me to take this? To replace what you lost? Rabbi, I can't. It's true it wouldn't be much worth as barter to your average person, but it definitely has value and significance. It is mine to do it as I like, and I would like for you to have it. Or do you wish to offend your new rabbi? I exhale, then reach forward and take the star. Thank you, I say. Just consider coming back again. That will make it worth it. I nod. Okay, rabbi, it's a deal. Your father would be proud of you, he says. How do you know that? Because he obviously cared enough about our culture to teach it to you. That you're here, that you still care about these things. Well, wouldn't it please him? I nod again, this time more slowly. I suppose it would. Then I shake my head. But what's the point, Rabbi? I don't have children. I'm not likely to. You still have some time left. I stand up. In this world? I don't even know that I would want that. And so whatever's been passed on dies with me. He flashes that half smile again. Then I suppose it's a good thing you're not the last Jew in the world. (laughs) Then I smile. I suppose the future of the Jewish faith doesn't reside in me. Can I ask you a question, Rabbi? He says, of course, but let me guess, how can I still believe in God in this world with all this going on around us? I wince. I bet you get that a lot. Probably even more than you think. And what do you say? He sits down next to me. People wonder how God can let all of this happen. The infection, the chaos, the death. They see it as a sign that he or she, however you want to look at it, doesn't exist. That if he did, he would stop it. Wouldn't he? And if he did, then what? He fixes everything for us, and then what do we do? Come to depend on God to make things right all the time? People said the same in ages past, through all the persecutions, the expulsions, and the genocides. Why didn't he stop them? Maybe it's as simple as we were given this world and allowed to act with free will in it. Maybe. Just maybe. Yes, I ask. He smiles and his teeth are surprisingly clean and even. Maybe he's even rooting for us. Maybe he still has hope because he believes in us. Wouldn't that be interesting? Maybe he wants to see us do it on our own. The rabbi's argument hasn't convinced me by any means, but it has given me a lot to think of. Here I am, expecting for someone to fix it, fix this, or flush it away. Always someone else's problem. My own concern has always been survival. I'm going to skip this next section where he offers him a place to stay for the night. The rabbi gets me set up in his extra room, but before I go to sleep, I step outside for a moment and look up at the sky at the stars. It stills me for a moment. So many tiny little specks of bright fire lighting up the night's blackness. I remember being a kid and thinking that those were all the bits and pieces of the world that the sick blew away, hanging over our heads as a reminder of what was. It was only later that I'd learned that they were other stars, billions of kilometers away. I've often wondered if any of those stars have planets like ours, and if any of them are as fucked up as our dear old Earth is. I wouldn't take bets. But it's beautiful and peaceful, and with the smell of the ocean blowing in the air, I have a moment of calm. I hold up the star the rabbi gave me. It's different from my father's old star. The planes are a little straighter. It's a little thinner. I trace its lines with my finger. Then I take the chain and carefully drop it around my neck. The star falls against my breastbone, and something clicks into place inside of me. There, right then, one more thing is right with the world. I look back up at the stars and some of my calm fades as if stolen by the wind. Because staring up at the sky, I know how badly I want to be up there. High above the ground, high above the sea in another world. And closer to the stars than I am now. Closer to those reminders of how life used to be. It's then that I make the decision. What I want to do. What I need to do. No more sitting around waiting. No more losing my grip on my future. I'm going after the cherub. Thank you, everybody.
1: As the the token Jew of the night, I can say I approve this message. (laughs) It's it's a hopeful message. Uh, We're going to take a 10 or 15 minute break. Books in the back to get signed and uh, have a drink. And we'll be back in a few minutes with Stephen. Thanks. Thank you.
0: Our second reader tonight is Stephen Gould. <coughs> Stephen is the author of ten science fiction novels including Jumper, source material for the 2008 movie of the same name. His fiction has been a finalist for the Hugo, Nebula, Compton Crook, <coughs> Locus, and Prometheus Awards and the recipient of the Howe Clement Award for YA science fiction. His latest novel is Exo, fourth book in the Jumper series. Please welcome Stephen Gould
2: it was was fun it was fun so um thank you very much um I noticed there's actually a couple of chairs, seats up here, you know, where I was sitting and a couple, if someone would like to not sit down, I no, bet they right
1: yeah. yeah, I mean,
2: that would be, uh, you know, yeah. Um, so, um, <laughs> that worked out. <laughs> Um, so thanks very much uh, I was going to read from EXO which is as Ellen said the fourth official book in the series there was a book written called uh, uh, Griffin, uh, Jumper Griffin Story which was actually a tie-in novel for the movie but it's true to the movie universe not for the, uh, the other thing so it's like five and a half uh, or four and a half jumper books um, so uh for those of you who are not familiar with Jumper, Jumper is about someone who can teleport. Um, in the second book, uh, Reflex, um, there's two people who can teleport. And in the last book, Impulse, which is this is a direct sequel to their daughter can teleport, whose name is Sint, which is short for Millicent, and her mother's name is Millie, um, which is short from Millicent. No, <laughs> um, so, uh, in the first book, um, so I've expanded the abilities that people can use teleportation for through each of the books, but they are all set up in the first uh, in the first book. Um, so, the main principle you need to know that uh, in the very first book, Davy uh, discovered that. In jumping from near the equator to northern latitudes, he is, was changing his rotational velocity. Um, you know, to match ups, he didn't fly through the nearest wall every time he uh, he appeared someplace. So he was clearly matching frames of reference. And his daughter in impulse says, "Well, if you can change your velocity by jumping, you know, while jumping a long distance, why can't I change my velocity?" right here by teleporting, and she determines that she can add substantial <coughs> speeds uh, in pretty much any direction she chooses, you know, by just teleporting in the same location and coming uh, and, and shooting off. Uh, in fact, the first time she does it with any success, she strips most of the clothes from her body, blacks both her eyes, and, <laughs> you know, the, dislocates all of her joints because she's overdone it a bit. So um, um, in EXO, she uses this ability to go into space. And, um, and so I'm going to read a chapter called Good Enough for Yuri. And um, it's, she is, at this point in the story, which is like 154 pages in, she has acquired a mechanical counter-pressure suit which is something that was invented in the 60s. But essentially our skin is capable of actually withstanding vacuum from space if it has a tight enough containment thing. This has been in several science fiction stories, um, but it's what she has. And so uh, I'm just going to go from there, and hopefully you'll get everything from the gist. Uh, one, One additional thing. Uh, to communicate with her uh, ground crew, uh, they're using Iridium satellite phones, which they've purchased on the black market. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I just think you should stick to under 200 kilometers. I hate it when they argue with me while I'm wearing the pressure pre-breathe mask. This time it was Corey and Dad. Why? Radiation, said Corey. I took a deep breath, lifted the mask away from my mouth, and said, Are you kidding? I put the mask back on and purged it before inhaling again. took it off. I'm staying equatorial and inside the inner Van Allen belt. No real difference. Dad wasn't giving up. He didn't have a circular orbit. His perigee was only 105 miles, 169 kilometers. I just shook my head. Dad glared. I hate it. I hate arguing with you when you're wearing that mask. He couldn't see my mouth, but he could tell I was smiling. We launched from the lab. There was no real point in having the ground crew in Texas, especially since the pre cell phone wouldn't get a signal there. When I jumped 10 kilometers, oh, sorry. When I jumped two 10 kilometers, it was over the pit. That was the sight I had. Ditto the 20 kilometers and then 104 The phone rang in my headset, and I hit the answer button. Status? Ask Corey. At 104 clicks altitude, adding velocity now. I flipped the visor down to protect my eyes. It was a weird thing. When I was learning to add velocity while jumping, my first clue, my first feedback was the sound of air rushing by. Not much air rushing by at these altitudes. See the problem? Now all of my feedback was visual. The motion of the Earth below or the stars above with the readings of the space-enabled GPS. I faced southeast and tried to imagine the Earth spinning below me. It stayed still. I was station-keeping, jumping back to that spot 104 kilometers above the pit to zero my vertical velocity, but with each jump trying to add vertic- horizontal speed to the east. It wasn't working. I'd drop again, but I wasn't moving sideways, that I could tell. Well, maybe if... I watched the readout on the GPS instead, looking at the heading and imagining it reading 120 degrees, one kilometer per second. Suddenly, the Earth was sliding, slowly under me, moving west and a bit north. I was still dropping, though, since one kilometer per second wasn't anywhere near orbital velocity for this altitude. Status? This time it was Dad's voice, and I could tell that Corey had put the cell phone on speaker. One kilometer per second, altitude 99 kilometers, heading 128 degrees. Central Texas. I jumped again, back to altitude, trying to double the horizontal speed. I peered at the GPS. Had it changed? It still said 1.0 kilometers per second, but the Earth seemed to be really spinning below. I looked at the display again. Not 1.0, but 10.0. 10 kilometers per second. Whoa. I barely kept myself from flinching back to my bedroom. Wouldn't that have surprised grandmother? This wouldn't take me in a circular orbit. This was fast enough to take me all the way out past the geosynchronous satellites, 38,500 kilometers away, before swinging back in a highly elliptical orbit, if the vector was in the right direction, it might even be enough velocity to get me gravitationally captured by the moon. 10 kps, 105 degrees bearing, 148 kilometers altitude. Corey said, what was your speed? I don't think I heard that right. 10 kps. Do, do you think that reading is right? Pretty sure. Longitude is changing far more rapidly than it was before my altitude is jumping and the Earth's spin Well, let's say it's zipping along Sent from leo. It only takes 10.9 kps to escape Earth's gravity Uh, Don't worry just using it to reach my target altitude. I'll trim it way back When the altitude read 300 kilometers, I started trimming the horizontal speed back paying more attention to my vertical speed status Dad's voice was a bit strident. Crossing Cuba, 8 kps, altitude 307 kilometers, heading 120 degrees. I kept increasing or decreasing the horizontal component until my vertical speed was barely changing. A very slight rise, less than a tenth of a kilometer every few minutes. What's happening there, Scent? Altitude, 340 kilometers, bearing 112 degrees, velocity, 7.72 kps. I bit down on the bite valve to take a sip of water, and it squirted hard, jetting into the back of my throat and airway. I began coughing furiously, and beads of water splashed off the inside of the faceplate and began floating around my face. Sint, what's wrong? Corey said, his voice rising slightly. Dad said, return, Sint, abort! Christ, her life support must be failing. I got my throat clear and took a wheezing breath. Then another, finally saying, It's okay. Got some water down the wrong pipe. That's it. Jesus. <laughs> I heard K- Corey exhale before saying, Microgravity can be tricky. Liquids don't always behave like you expect. Tell me about it. Though I didn't think it was microgravity that was the problem. When we tested the suit the day before, the water feed had behaved like any earth-bound hydration pack bite down to open the valve and suck to get the water into your mouth. I cautiously bit down on the bite valve again, barely squeezing, and the water sprayed hard into my mouth. I released the valve and swallowed the water. We've got a bit of overpressure problem in the water compartment, Corey. What? Oh, I heard him smack his forehead with the palm of his hand. The compartment is at a full atmosphere, and the helmet is now a third of that. It must be squirting like a fire hose. It's not leaking through the valve, is it? Um, it wasn't designed to hold a differential pressure. It just open so you could suck water. Last thing you want to do is get a helmet full of water. I glanced at the drops that were floating in front of my eyes. They were drifting past my cheeks, heading for the air return to the rebreather. The first filter cartridge the water would hit in the rebreather chamber was the activated charcoal, but next one after that was the silica gel, and it would probably soak up the drops. Unless I realized that really the first thing the water would encounter on the entering the chamber was one of the circulation fans. I hoped it wouldn't short out. The bite valve seems to be holding, I said. Maybe we can put an overpressure valve on the water compartment to vent the excess when I'm uh, exo-atmospheric. Sure. I've even got a spare that's set to 5 PSI. It'll take less than a half hour to drill, tap, and install it. You want to come back and take care of it now? From the tone of his voice, I knew which one he preferred. No. I'll keep an eye on it. Besides, as I drink, there will be more room in the chamber and the pressure will drop. Understood. Give me your stats again. I'd like to get the elements of your orbit. I just crossed the equator and I'm well out into the Atlantic. Altitude is 341 kilometers. Speed is 7.72 kps. I gave him the longitude and latitude. How's your temperature? Comfortable. It's local afternoon, but I'm not feeling anything heating up. I was feeling a little thirsty, so I took another cautious gulp from the water jet. Over the next 10 minutes, I gave him updates. as The sun sank slowly lower behind me. Okay, he said. A few minutes after the last update. Pretty circular. I've got an apogee of 362 kilometers and a perigee of 322. Inclination of orbit is 24.3 degrees, and the period is just under 92 minutes. Were you going to adjust it anymore? I thought about it. Our biggest concern was radiation. And as long as we stayed inside the inner Van Allen belt, it was moderate, the Earth's magnetic field funneled the sun's charged particles around the planet or trapped them in the radiation belts. Because the inclination of my orbit was low, I wasn't, also wasn't going anywhere near the South Atlantic anomaly where the inner Van Allen radiation belt drops within 200 kilometers of the surface. Lost Lots of high energy particles there. 92 minutes. Copy that. Let's leave things as they are. When I first started looking at orbital speeds and periods, I thought there should be more of a difference between 200 and 340 kilometers of altitude. I thought of it as a 60% increase. What I didn't realize, that it was the radius of the orbits that mattered, not the distance to sea level, but how far it was to the center of the Earth. So it's really a difference between 6,600 and 6,740 kilometers, a change of just 2%. The entire earth was darkening below me as I reached the west coast of Africa. For me, the sun was still brilliantly bright through the visor and a full hand span above the horizon. But the curvature of the earth put everything below me into night. A few minutes later, when the sun dropped over the horizon, the entire western edge of the planet lit up, a bright thin band of atmosphere, and then it faded. Wow. And then it was too dark. For a second, I waited, thinking my eyes would adjust but finally I remembered the visor and pushed it up. There were stars above and man-made stars below when I crossed the African coast over Benguela, Angola. For me, it was a line of lights, defining the coast and a splotch of light where the city and airport were, but Corey identified the location for me. Now that he had the orbit, he was running an active plot and computer. When I passed a brightly lit city, he was able to name it for me. It took less than seven minutes to cross the continent, 3,000 miles, through Angola, Zambia, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Zambia again, Malawi, and Mozambique. Two minutes later, I zipped past the northern tip of Madagascar, and my ground track bent north again over the dark Indian Ocean, and brighter swaths of moonlit clouds stretching east towards Australia. Hey, Sint, Corey said. Yeah? Yeah. You might want to look up. I tried to turn like I would on Earth, twisting my hips, but my legs went one way and my torso went the other, then returned, and I was still facing the Earth. So I ran in place, pumping my feet in a circular motion, as if I was running forwards. My entire body began rotating backwards. I stopped running, and my body stopped rotating. Ha! Just like in the videos. I did it again until the earth was to my back, and I was looking out into the black. The three-quarter moon was quite a ways north of me, and the amazing Milky Way was off to my left, but I don't think that was what Corey meant. What am I looking for? Oh, my God! I'm not religious, really, but some things. That's 60 kilometers above you, Corey said. It's crossing your path at about 30 degrees. You're going faster, of course. At 60 kilometers it was only a jagged dot, but I could make out the panel sticking off the main truss and crossing it a thicker white line of modules running from the standby Dragon personnel capsule off the Harmony Hood all the way to the standby Soyuz off the Zvezda service module at the other end. To my eyes it was drifting backward in orbit and from north to south, though we must have been going the same direction, south to north, or it would have crossed my path like a bullet at several kilometers per second. They were only 60 kilometers away, the eight humans currently in space. Nine total. I could see it. I could jump to it. And I would. But not today. Sunrise, like sunset, was spectacular, happening sometime after I crossed Papua, New Guinea, into the Pacific proper. I had to grab the sunriser to flip it into place quickly, and in my haste, I hit the headset button, disconnecting Cory and Dad. Oops. I floated on, in the knowledge that they would call back. So when the phone rang after 30 seconds, I tapped the button and said, Sorry about that, accidentally hit the disconnect. Oh, Really? My teeth clicked together. It wasn't Dad's voice, and it wasn't Corey's. Hello? This is Mark Mendez. Who am I talking to? You have the wrong number, I said. (laughs) I'm pretty sure this is the handset I'm interested in. I'm calling from the Iridium Communications Satellite Network Operating Center in Leesburg, Virginia. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I tried bluffing. Well, then you know how expensive my sat phone moment minutes are. (laughs) Dad had prepaid $4,000 for 5,000 units when he purchased the phone, which did take the price down to 80 cents per minute. Still, some folks bought smaller chunks that weren't as discounted, costing over $1.25 a minute. Our minutes were global, supposed to be good almost anywhere, but Dad had added, we might not be able to use them above North Korea. Your account minutes are not being deducted for this diagnostic call, the voice said. We're seeing some aberrant behavior from your handset. <laughs> the call you were just on, was it working all right? <laughs> my breathing slowed a little. I hadn't realized it had increased. Uh, sure, awesome, though I hung up on my peeps by accident. They're probably trying to call me right now. I heard him say something to the side, not into the mouthpiece. Oh, what? No, that's not possible. Check it by footprint. His voice strengthened. Oh, your party. Yes, they were. An associate at the Tempe Gateway Station is talking to them now. You intercepted their call? That's kind of creepy. They wouldn't have been able to reach you while I was on on the line. We just wanted them to know that your handset was still operational. And why wouldn't it be? He chuckled. This will sound a little crazy, but according to our Doppler shift data, the handset is currently traveling nearly 28,000 kilometers per hour. We're trying to find the glitch in our system. Found it! Someone spoke to him in the background and I heard, not sure it's a glitch. Hold please. He said. The sound went away. I think he muted his mic. He was gone long enough that I thought the call had dropped and I was going to hit the disconnect when he came back. His voice was accusatory. Your handset is switching between satellites in completely different orbital panes as often as it switches between units in the same orbit. The same orbit? the same orbit. Our satellites are in polar orbits in six different orbital planes, 30 degrees apart. If your handset was sitting in one location, the handoff would be between one of 11 satellites in the same plane, with occasional sideways transfers as the rotation of the Earth took the handset under a different orbital plane. During your previous call, your phone was handed off to the satellites in different orbital planes seven times. Seven, I thought you said there were just six. Your handset encountered the first plane again on the opposite side of the planet. Why do you keep.? No, not really. I don't think it's
1: picking
2: it up.
1: Okay. Anyway, so, um. Where were we? Why
2: do you keep saying handset? Your handset. You've mounted your, the handset in some sort of microset. Those are orbital speeds. You're linking to it by a separate transceiver than using our system to check your radio link, right? Oh, he doesn't think I'm in space. He thinks the handset is. I suppose that's one possibility, I said. I could hear the other person speaking in the background again, and Mendez said off to the side, not possible. Well, which is it? I didn't hear the response. He spoke back into the handset. What is your satellite's NORAD ID? We didn't apply for one. You don't apply for an ID. NORAD assigns them on launch. We got a rough plot on your satellite's orbit, and there's nothing in the Joint Space Operations Tracking Database that matches. Perhaps we recently changed (laughs) orbits. No, there would have been a collision evaluation if a change had been detected, and it would have been unless you've managed to get your satellite smaller than five centimeters. The 955 handset you're using is 15 times longer than that. I knew we should have told somebody we were launching. He exhaled sharply. Right, as if you could launch without detection. Obviously, I could, but I understood his conviction. Peaceful rocket launches look a lot like (laughs) non-peaceful ballistic missile launches, and there is a lot of technology out there to detect those. I could hang up, or I could tell him the truth. All right, Mr. Mendez, I am using your satellite for orbit-to-ground communications. My associate... Dad. Look Looked through your t- terms of service and didn't find any restrictions on altitude. Is orbital use a violation of your TOS? He didn't say anything for five seconds. <laughs> Finally, speaking slower than before he managed. That's incredible. Uh, no, it's not actually covered in the TOS. <laughs> I guess they didn't consider it a possibility. <laughs> Our Iridium-next constellation includes a system to communicate with spaceborne assets, but it won't be completely deployed for four more years. Anyone putting packages in orbit for the U.S. works with the TDRS system in geosynchronous or uses transceivers and ground stations. Why aren't you using ours? I would think that would be obvious. So we can communicate from any part of our orbit, no waiting to come around to a ground station. Are we messing up your network by calling from altitude? Uh, no. Since you're not transmitting through the atmosphere, you have excellent signal strength, but we should probably have a different sort of user agreement. If nothing else, people capable of putting a satellite in orbit can afford premium rates. (laughs) Greedy? Much? Just good business. Let me speak to your boss. My what? Your boss, put him on. (laughs) Him? I looked down at the deep blue of the Pacific, striped with low, cumulus clouds, and calmed myself by thinking, he can't see what I'm seeing. (laughs) I loved how the cloud shadow trailed across the water to the west as the sun rose. I took two deep breaths before saying, I can't do that. Can't or won't, I will shut your handset out of the system. On what grounds? Who's violating the terms of service now? You've already interrupted today's mission. This is not our usual usage, he said. It needs to be discussed. Emphatically, I said, I knew we should have gone with MRSAT or Global Star. Your network probably won't work for us anyway when we're working the high orbitals. Working the high... Never mind. Let me speak to the person in charge. You already... Someone said something to him and he covered the mouthpiece of the handset but I still heard a muffled No additional delay? That's not possible. Then to me, we're not seeing a delay on your radio to orbit transmission. How are you doing that? (laughs) Because I'm with the handset, Mr. Mendez I'm not sending it sending a separate radio signal to a satellite and using Iridium to check it. I'm using the sat phone to communicate with my ground crew. I heard a sharp intake of breath. This is a manned mission? I gritted my teeth. This is a womaned mission. (laughs) Now, are you going to get off the line and let me talk to my peeps or not? (laughs) That's not possible, he said, but the certainty wasn't there. (coughs) You keep saying that. I'm not sure it means what you think it means. (laughs) You're in orbit. Pretty damn sure. 7.72 kilometers per second, 351 kilometers above sea level. I'm coming up on the international dateline. There's some islands below. Don't know which ones, but they have a lot of ring-shaped barrier reefs. Uh, atolls, where is the iridium bird I'm connected to? Uh, I heard his head moved against the headset. It's just south of the Marshall Islands. That would be it. You wouldn't believe how the water color changes as it gets shallower. It makes me want to go snorkeling. I took a sip of water, and in a flat voice I said, besides talking to my non-existent boss, what do you want, Mr. Mendez? Um, How long are you going to be doing this? Oh, we're going to be operating for several years. Oh, did you mean today? Just this one orbit. We'll be off the air in another 30 minutes, but depending on our post-mission analysis, I'm deorbiting a satellite tomorrow. I heard a sharp intake of breath. Oh, don't worry, it's not one of yours. (laughs) I disconnected the call. My heart was pounding, my stomach felt a little sick. For a second I thought something was wrong with my life support, but I realized it was just reaction. It's not that I like confrontation, but it doesn't really scare me since I can always jump away from it if I have to, and I must admit I tend to be a little impulsive. Before Mr. Mendez called back, I hit the handset button to redial our base station phone. Are you all right? sent Dad's voice. I sighed with relief. I'm fine, but let's go with call signs from here on out. I just talked to the most annoying man. I told him about Mr. Mendez of Iridium Communications Satellite Network Operating Center, and they're all to accurate conclusions. Yeah, we talked to one of his people. You think they're listening in? Maybe. Call signs then, roger that baby bear. I rolled my eyes. Okay, Papa Bear. I can see the Hawaiian Islands coming up on Oahu. Cory's voice spoke. I am not gonna be Mama Bear. Roger that, porridge. Dad left. Corey said, I prefer Capcom. What's your environmental status, baby bear? Can we come up with something besides baby bear? Okay. I'm not too hot, not too cold. I guess that makes it just right. I've drunk enough water that the pressure has dropped just to trickle when I bite the valve. Doesn't Capcom sound for capsule communicator? Used to. Now they translate it as spacecraft communicator, and they use it for everything, including talking to the ISS. Capcom is a nice, clear word, easy to understand on noisy transmissions. Roger that, Capcom. I'll stop there.
1: Thank you i hope you enjoyed that hang out you don't have to leave yet
0: keep drinking have some more books signed and see you next month thank you you have been listening to the fantastic fiction at kgb podcast recorded live at the kgb bar we hope you enjoyed what you heard and we thank you for listening we also wish to thank gordon Lindzer for providing the audio sandra martinez for her audio editing and rajin kana that's me for the introduction and farewell And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.